Set before me was a bitter winter, one of chilling wind and skin-cracking dry cold. The storm threatened, beyond my home and possessions, my life. Oft I wondered what should make me remain in a place so hostile. I reasoned after considerable deliberation, for great storms allow time for such meditation, that certainly any other place must have its own hostilities, and it was all very well that I stay put and endure the hostilities in which I was versed and for which I was equipped. Three days after the storm began, the first of the season, the dunes of snow swept up above the top of my home, forcing me to utilize the hatch built into the ceiling of my kitchen to access the world, the hatch which I built during the previous mild season to avoid complications of winter's past. From my rooftop perch, I could see no candlelit windows for the impenetrable blanket impeding my vision comprised of the fast-falling, near-fist-sized flakes and the many-foot-deep accumulation covering a ground that long ago forgot to grow life and homes that long ago forgot to house it. I mentioned the mild season. It is imperative, you see, to consider mild a relative term as one must always consider descriptive language. To define the mild season would not be to evince a temperate climate one may associate with bonfires and general outdoor pleasantness. No. Plainly speaking, the mild season is simply a tolerable winter. This was not the case even four years prior. Green and red and yellow and brown existed in the world before, flooded it even. If I dig into the furthest recesses of my mind, I can still recall the colors in their most brilliant forms, earthy and rich, bringing with them smells of decay and rebirth. But now there is only white. Now life is different. That night, the third night of the worst storm, there on the roof, all candlelight obscured, if the candlelight even existed at all, I found myself pondering the vast whiteness, the seemingly blank, impressionable new world, as I did many nights before and would many nights after. I let the cold numb me from my skin to my bones and imagined life a waltz, a somber but comforting one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, pulsing through the snow, a wandering but always returning melody making its way out into the distance and back to me on my rooftop. I thought how nice it would be to share the waltz with someone, anyone. Just as the thought crossed my mind, I saw a black speck appear, harsh against the white. I thought, surely it was trickery. I'd experienced the hallucinations before, a byproduct of so much time on one's own, I suspected. 
I'd grown used to them, fond of them and their company, even. But as the speck approached and became a figure walking onto my roof, it became difficult to accept as trickery over providence. Good evening, the figure yelled above the wind, which I hadn't realized was howling until that very moment when there was suddenly something to be heard above it. I noticed the sharpness of the snow against my face and worried for the first time that it may be cutting me open. The figure was still yelling. Shall we go inside? Without a word, I hauled the hatch open against the wind and allowed the figure to drop down into my kitchen. It's curious, you may think, that I should allow a stranger into my home in the beginnings of the worst storm of all my time in this world, including the four thereafter that led to the present. And while the circumstances surrounding our meeting and the time we spent together derailed into peculiarity and perhaps even strangeness, what you must understand is that I had seen no human being for four years and six days. I had been reduced to longing for candlelit windows, indicating warmth, life, indicating anything. Along with that profound sort of loneliness comes the willingness to accept such peculiarity and strangeness, the willingness to accept danger. I would ask if you're real, but I fear the answer may be different from what I'd like to hear, I said, my voice croaking out into the air, different and harsher than the timbre I'd grown used to in my life before the storms. It felt different in my throat than before. Taking stock, I realized that I couldn't recall the last time I'd spoken a single word. In that moment, I felt older, changed, different inside the skin that certainly must be the same as before, but felt as though it stretched over and covered my soul differently than it once had. Do you have any tea? said the figure, who, finally free of his heavy winter clothing, was revealed to be a man, broad-shouldered, with wind-worn skin, scraped here and there by ice, the cuts tiny windows into the inside of him, into the red of him. His voice, I couldn't help but note, sounded familiar, but perhaps only in the sense that it was human, like my own, and not the wind. There was really no way to be sure. I do, I said, and put on the kettle. I retrieved tea from the tea cupboard, where I kept pounds upon pounds of the loose leaves. There was no being too prepared. I packed two bags and placed them into two mugs, handcrafted clay, a distant memory, in silence. I watched him scan the bare walls, naked for lack of photographs, all of which I burned during the first storm to keep warm. The years had erased the faces of my loved ones from my mind and refilled it with only white. 
It was for that very reason I wish I'd let myself freeze to death that first time around. But I couldn't. Something wouldn't allow me. Finally, blessedly, there was the sound of the kettle whistling. Still cold? The man asked, gesturing to the many layers I had yet to shed. I don't remember when last I wasn't, I said, handing him a mug that was almost too hot to touch. Truth be told, I was sweating profusely, despite the goosebumps crawling across my flesh. I felt the salt dripping from my hairline down my back, from my cheek down my neck and chest. As he drank his tea, I undressed down to my base layer, a thermal shirt and sturdy black coveralls, which I unzipped and let hang at my waist, revealing the feminine curvature that made me the man's opposite in physique. It was when he said, the others are coming, that I determined he must certainly be death in human form come for me, the reaper, omniscient and powerful, alluring and somehow elusive to this point. There were no others. There hadn't been in so long. I said as much. Of course there are others. He picked up an apple from the bowl on the table and took a bite, putting it back exactly where he found it as the slightest scowl slid across his face. He was the second person I'd ever known to dislike the fruit, enough so to reject it even when it was the only sweet thing to be had. Do you believe in ghosts? he asked. The shift caught me by surprise, and I forgot to respond, though I'm still not certain he'd have let me had I tried. Before the others came for me, I spent an awful lot of time with dead people. I thought for a long while that I was mad, until one day a switch flipped and I believed they were real. I knew somewhere inside of myself they were real. I watched as he thought for a moment. He glanced back at the apple as if considering another bite, but decided against it. You see, he finally continued. I don't think it was so much a haunting as it was the ghosts taking pity on me and my soul, sitting there all alone for so long. He laughed at this. I didn't find it terribly funny, and frankly, I grew more and more concerned about his presence in my home with each passing moment. I felt myself take an automatic step back away from him, suddenly aware that his size made me feel small, despite the lean muscle I'd gained over the years of manual labor. But something deep down stopped me from being completely afraid of him. Are you dead? I asked, finally questioning my own sanity as I should have upon allowing him through the hatch. Are you? He asked. I considered this. I don't feel dead, I said, and that was the truth of it in the moment. Not most of the time, at least, though I wouldn't discount this as an afterlife, a hell of sorts, cold and lonely as it is. I paused. 
A purgatory, perhaps. That feels more likely, I think. It's maybe too quiet for hell. I glanced at my fingertips and noted the vague, translucent blueness of my skin that seemed ever-present as the cold itself. I allowed myself to become aware of the permanent numbness of my extremities, the numbness that I worked to ignore. Listen, he said, leaning closer to me, only slightly, as if something emanating from me had pricked his ear. I listened. I heard little more than the air in the room, something I'd learned to hear. He stepped closer, arrived just in front of me, an arm's length. There's a little hammer in there, he said, pointing at my chest. It's keeping you alive. I thought, rather, it was trying to hammer its way out, rip a hole right through my chest so that I might not live anymore. I looked down at my boots, examined the scuffs as if I were reading a novel with fierce intrigue. We're both here, are we not? He said. What's that have to do with anything? I asked. I only mean to say that I am as dead as you are. You and I, we're on the same plane, my dear. Perhaps that's why I posit the opposite. It's a selfish bid. The endearment with which he adorned his comment was not so condescending as it may have sounded, rather something familiar, like an old shirt worn at the elbows. Finally, I looked back up at the man, my hand rising and absently hovering over the heart inside me. It keeps me awake some nights, the racing of it. There was a cut along his hairline, running the length of his temple that I hadn't noticed before. It seemed to be opening before me in some surreal manner. I can feel my blood moving inside me on those nights, like a river after a night of rain. I can hear it humming. Have you ever watched someone die? He asked, the shift jarring. I recalled the rise and fall of my husband's chest, my brother's, my mother's. I recalled their breathing before and while they each died. Though their faces remained a blur, the pieces of them representing their deaths persisted in my mind's eye, despite my best efforts to erase the memories. I recalled the stopping, each of them simply ceasing to exist as they fell asleep for the final time, cold and frostbitten. You can tell it's coming. You see, their jaws hitch in a particular sort of way in those final days, slack on the bottom, an imperfectly C-shaped top lip, sloping further down on one side than the other, creating a cavernous mouth unable to form words from sounds, their bodies merely too loose flesh hanging from bones and atrophied muscle as if it were dripping down into the ground, wrinkles defying and mocking their youth, clouds marring their vision, 
so that all they might see is the dark shadow of the reaper plaguing their dreams. Slow deaths, the kind you don't wish for yourself, for anyone. That's what I'd seen. And if there's anything they taught me, it's that death has no consideration for anyone, not the young, nor the good, nor one who possesses both qualities. Hasn't everyone? I replied at length. Who then are your ghosts? He asked, as if I collected them just the same as he seemed to in his own life, as if I were haunted just the same. I became uncomfortable in the silence I created and moved to the stove. I opened wide the cabinet to my right, where meats hung from the top, hovering over a blood-stained floor. I took a rabbit from its hook and laid the slab of its body on a thick piece of wood that sat on the counter and began cutting it into chunks for a stew. You can have a seat if you like, I said, gesturing over my shoulder with the knife without looking at him, finally remembering how to use my tongue. I heard the scraping of the kitchen chair's legs along the floor and the weight of the man sitting. I heard the air settle. Then there was only the sound of the chopping, blade through meat, repeatedly until, after a while, I began humming, as I always did to keep myself company. My wife did just the same, the man said, a particular intrigue in his voice that made him sound much different than he had to that point. Slowly he asked, What's the tune? As if he anticipated my answer, he spoke with me, and together we said, one I've known a long while, chop. My knife punctuated the statement. The steel through the bloodied mess of meat in front of me rang even louder through the kitchen than it had before. The quiet, a megaphone, projecting the sound through the room, through the bones. It was a long moment before I spoke, and when I did, I made sure to turn and look him squarely in the eyes. Tell me about your ghosts. I'm to tell you of mine without knowing yours? I turned back to the meat and continued chopping the last bit. Very well, he said, taking a deep breath. I sat by my fire one evening, reading. I thought to myself what a luxury a book might be. I'd burned mine along with the photos. I hadn't the will to save a single page. I placed the meat on the stove to cook and turned back to the man. What book? I asked. Does it matter? Yes. I muttered, somewhat deflated by his lack of enthusiasm. It was a book of sea voyages and siren songs, of sailors with calloused hands and lonely hearts, of sirens with voices clear and pretty as a songbird's, and of the longing between the two. Stories from before the seas froze over, I said. Exactly. That's what I was reading. And then, 
as if born from the air itself. There she was, my wife, a specter standing before me, humming as she always had before, beautiful, a lark in the winter, just the same as you. It was then that his eyes struck me, the shape, the faint crow's feet sprouting from the outer corners, the thick lashes protecting dark green irises. I couldn't help but feel I'd spent an eternity looking into those eyes. It was then, he continued, that I knew it was time for me to go. And now here you are. And now here I am, he returned. Here I am with you. We were torn from the conversation by heavy stomps on the hatch. The others. Will you be getting that? he asked. I did so, reluctant to let anyone else into my home. You see, I had not yet grown tired of discerning who the man before me was and why his soul seemed so entirely familiar to my own. Once they entered, it was five additional bodies in total. The atmosphere became what I can only describe as raucous, but only, I believe, for the fact that I hadn't heard a voice in addition to my own in so long, let alone many. Introductions were made and the stew was cooked, taken over by a large man who smelled of the same cigars my father smoked when I was a child and claimed his recipe could not be rivaled. I told him it was very likely that any recipe would trump my own and to feel free to cook for the duration of his stay. We ate dinner in the sitting room where there was almost enough seating for everyone. I sat on the floor so as to provide room for the rest. It's no trouble at all, I said many times over as I planted myself on the worn down carpet. As we ate, I remained mostly silent, trying to discern the relationships the others had to one another. I gleaned that the boy, he had the lightest spirit of the lot, with a fair complexion and dark curls similar to my own, was the son of the slim woman whose face was both world-weary and beautiful, perhaps one the result of the other. The man who smelled of cigars was either her husband or her lover. I could not determine which, but it's fair to say the boy treated him much like a father. There was an elderly pair as well, the woman's parents, which I knew definitively as they introduced themselves as such at the very beginning of the evening. After we ate, the woman produced a small mechanism that she claimed could produce music. Her son took it from her at once and fixed it on a mounted shelf. If you point it this way, he said, indicating its angle in relation to the wall, the sound bounces off the wall and it becomes even louder. At once, music filled the room. The man who smelled of cigars held a hand out to the woman. It does seem a night for dancing, he said. As gracefully as one could imagine, for the woman was all grace and nothing but. She took his hand and together they glided about the room. The elderly couple followed suit, their dance slower, 
but more skilled for their extra years of practice. The man, who had been as silent as I through the evening, approached me and offered his hand. I expected warmth from him, but when he took my hand in his, I realized that his body temperature matched my own, a bone cold that could find no warmth despite its seeking. He maintained slow and deliberate movement as we danced to a melody somewhat buried in the lushness of strings I hadn't heard in so many years. I forgot to pay attention to the arc of it, the rise and fall of the pitches, as I was otherwise preoccupied. My rigidity broke as his hand slid to the small of my back, pulling me into him. The others waltzed around us. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. Only after I'd become confident that they were no longer paying attention to us did I lean close to his ear and ask the question that had needled its way into my mind the moment he first spoke to me. What brought you here? Why, you did, of course. He replied with a sureness that confused me. I tried puzzling over this statement, and as if he heard the whir of the inner workings of my brain, he went on. It was your siren song that brought me here. He began to hum along to the song we all danced to. It was then that I recognized the tune as my own, a song from another life, my favorite, one that I wore out, one that I hummed each time I worked in the kitchen or found my mind idle while my hands worked. How do you know this song? The man asked me, his breath falling hot on my ear. It was the only warmth I'd felt in years, and it worked its way inside me, deeper and deeper until it reached my core in a way that filled me entirely. I told him it was my mother who taught me the song. She played it on a machine identical to the one that now played in my sitting room. How did you know the others weren't simply more ghosts? I asked, my mind splitting off into different directions, each path more ludicrous than the former. I didn't, he said. In fact, I'm still not certain that they aren't. Do you take pity on me the way you think your ghosts took pity on you? Do you mean to imply that I'm haunting you? Are you? I asked. Are you haunting me? He returned as he spun me. You and I, we're on the same plane, I said. We are indeed, my dear. I'm only as alive as you are. That seems a fair conclusion, he said, and he stopped dancing only long enough to produce a flower from his pocket. It was small and yellow. He tucked it into my breast pocket the bloom of it sticking out to see all the world. It had been so long since I'd seen a living thing, I was surprised that I remembered what yellow was. But it was so vibrant against all the white that my memory had no will to fail me. It was then that the laughter from the others pulled my attention. 
Music against the silence my life had been for so long. Happiness against the misgivings of a cold world. It was the sound of family, I couldn't help but think. It was a sound so familiar that I understood in that moment exactly who each person was and exactly why their souls pulled them to my sitting room that evening. In that moment, I knew beyond all other things that we all belonged exactly where we were. We would even perhaps be okay. I can tell you now from the other side of several storms that followed, each lesser in power than the last, that it was a sentiment come true. The sun did come out once again, and the flowers did grow, and the seas did unfreeze. And here we sit now, a family, enjoying our lives, our souls returned to one another at last. <laughs>